Welcome to part three, the final part of the Bumper End of Year podcast. In this section, we're going to discuss the questions that didn't neatly fit into any of the other categories. So we'll now do the miscellaneous questions. These are the ones that didn't neatly fit into any of the other categories. Uh, the first one is from Karek Garung, who asks, uh, he saw a recent Instagram post uh, showing the places that are trained in Japan, and he wants to know, uh, what did the Japanese students and senseis think about your ideas, and how did they react to your style of training? It didn't come up. You know, I, I pride myself on being a good guest when I go to other people's dojos. Uh, so I wasn't there to teach. I wasn't there to share my ideas. I was there to train, so I go into the dojo and I do whatever it is they ask of me. So we went to some dojos that were more pragmatic, some that were more sport-based, some that were more 3K-based. Whichever one it was, I, I went in there and did exactly what was asked of me and tried to learn whatever it was they were teaching. So there was no reaction because uh, because it never came up. So the next one is from Ian Haynes, and he asks, could you give a brief synopsis of the main karate schools and styles, their founders, and the main katas attributed to them? So that, that's obviously a big ask, you know. So uh, unfortunately, the brief answer to the question is no. <laughs> uh, it would take too long. Um, but we have talked about, you know, the karate history before. And as a general point, I, I think it's important for people to know the history of their particular lineage. Then they'll understand it better. They'll understand where is all this stuff came from. How did it get to us? What's been done to it over time? Who who improved it? Who added this to it? Where does this form of practice came from? So so it is something that I, I would uh, encourage everyone to research. So as a friend always likes to remind me whenever I start talking about martial arts history, he always says, uh, yeah, very interesting, Ian, but it doesn't help me punch harder. So we have to be careful that we don't get so interested in the history that we lose focus on what we're doing but a good understanding of the history will help you understand your art and because you understand it better you'll train it more effectively so i, I can't give you what you've asked for ian because it would it would take too long i mean it would it, you could write volumes of books on that topic and people have uh, but I, I would encourage everyone to make sure that they research their own systems so the next one is uh, from Dustin uh, Lundy, and he asks, uh, what's my thoughts on Kime, the theory and practice, etc.? So this is one of these interesting ones. Uh, so in 3K circles, uh, Kime often refers to the locking of the muscles at the end of the technique. But to me, that's not Kime. Right? Uh, Kime is a focusing of your energies. Right? So Kime is making sure that when your punch hits the target every part of your body is coordinating in a way that will ensure optimal impact. That's Kime. Right? The tensing of the muscles at the end, that is an emergency break for your joints. That's what that is. So if your punch missed and you fired this limb out at full power, if you don't slow that limb down fast, right, you're going to hyperextend the limb, you're going to pop your elbow out, you're going to throw your shoulder. So what you do is, if the technique doesn't make contact with anything, you have to slow it down by playing the emergency brakes at the very end of the technique. If the technique hits a target, the target will slow it down. So it's a non-issue. So when we're doing kata, for example, and we're, you know, we're doing it in the air, then Kime is there at the end of every technique because none of those techniques hit anything. Right, But if you're doing it against an opponent, 
their body will slow it down. Or if you do it against a bag or, you know, pad or whatever, their body will slow that down. So in terms of, you know, the thoughts on Kimmy, I think we need to remember what it is. You know, it, it's a convergence of all your energies. That's what Kimmy is to ensure the maximum efficiency of the technique, that every part of your body is doing the right thing at the right time. So in that sense, it's really important. Kimmy is often misunderstood to be the contraction of the muscles. Nothing to do with power generation or anything like that. I get it makes the movement look aesthetically pleasing, but its function is it's an emergency break in the, the last couple of inches of the, that technique to stop you uh, hyperextending your joints. Boxers do it too, right? You watch your boxers when they shadow box, you'll see them put the same pop at the end of the punch. It's the same thing. But, but, but it, it's not a power generation thing, it's a joint protection thing. So the next question is from Ali Wittick. He says, to what extent do you think Motobu's 12 Kumite drills were influenced by A, his after-drink street fight, B, his experience of fighting boxers, and C, his karate training experience? See, I think they're a fusion of all of that. I, I, I think that when you look at Motobu's 12 two-person drills, they're a good illustration of the karate as he describes it throughout his, his wider texts you know so you see a lot of the concepts that he likes to employ for example blocking and hitting with the same hand uh, you see that throughout the drill so there, there are a nice encapsulation or summation of Motobu's uh, key key points of course you know in his writing he showed a lot more than these 12 drills you know he shows lots of two-person techniques but, but I think these 12 make a nice set. And often, because they come from his book, and, and often when you're writing a book, you know, you're limited for space. So you say, okay, what am I going to show that illustrates the idea? So to be honest about this, my first book was written over 20 years ago, my Karate Grappling Methods book. And in the back end of that book, there's some combination drills that show how it all fits together. If you were to ask me what they were, I can't remember. <laughs> it's a long time since I've read my book. So I produced them for the book, you know what I mean? So people can run through them and they get the general idea. But they, they haven't became a solidified form of practice. It's just showing how the various methods can integrate. And I can't help but feel we might be in danger of doing a similar thing with Motobu's 12 drills, right? So he's writing a book. He needs 12 drills for the book. He shows these 12 drills, which kind of encapsulate his ideas quite nicely and quite succinctly. Uh, but I, I don't think we should view them as the definitive uh, collection of Motobu methods. You know, he, there's a much wider canon there uh, when we look at all of his stuff. But yeah, when I look at his drills, to, to me, they, they seem to be a mix of all of that. This podcast brought to you by 2021, the year where it will feel amazing to get punched in the face again. Uh, next question is from Andrew Adams. He said, my question is, uh, how much attention do you pay to other martial arts media? Are there people you make sure to watch? Are there podcasts you make sure to listen to on a regular basis? Or are you too busy to have time to really take in other stuff? It's mainly the last one. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm that busy producing my own content and doing all the things that I need to do that I generally don't get a time to look at look other stuff. Uh, there's a lot of podcasts I like to listen to, but these are mainly my friends, you know. So we've got Marshall Journeys, 
podcast that Gretchen does, I really like that. The Jamie Club's podcast is another one that I really like. You know, so um, there's some martial arts I like for the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stuff. I always like Stefan Kesting's stuff. I find his channel to be quite interesting. But but I generally don't kind of follow it all uh, massively closely. Uh, what tends to happen is I, when having breakfast and things, I'll open up my iPad, I'll see what YouTube's got for me, and while I'm eating my breakfast, I'll watch something. But it, it, there's no order to it, it's just whatever comes in. Uh, the other thing, again, in, in my line of work, uh, that I have to be mindful of as well, is I, I deliberately kind of don't expose myself to some of it, uh, simply because I'm conveying my ideas and uh, there's always a chance, you know, when you watch other people's material, that that ideas sink into your brain, and then later on you regurgitate them, thinking it's your own. Uh, and I, I want to be very mindful to avoid that, you know, so I'm not inadvertently plagiarizing anybody. Uh, the, the only time I can think of that I've done that, um, which is quite a funny one really, was it was uh, for my kids' class. I decided I wanted to create a very basic cutter. Uh, just to teach them the turns, all the various turns in the various directions. So I came up with what was a super simple kata. Uh, I gave it the name Keon Kata, just basic kata, and then quite proud of it. You know, this gives the kids what they need. Uh, six or seven months later, I'm in Northern Ireland, and I'm sitting on a grading panel with my friend Dan Redmond. And we're watching uh, a couple of the uh, junior uh, grades do their kata. And Dan turns to me and says, oh, I have this cutter that I've got just for the kids, you know, and uh, to help them with the turns and stuff. And I go, oh, right, okay, yeah, no, I've got one of those as well. So, and he goes, yeah, it's called Keon Cutter. And I thought, oh, wow, look at that, you know, we've got the same name. Anyway, then they do the cutter and it's exactly the same cutter. <laughs> so I, 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 I must have, you know, saw Danny's students do it. It must have sunk into my brain. And then when I came to recreate one of my own, my brain just kind of pieced together exactly the same thing, right? So um, I, I deliberately kind of steer clear of, of anyone doing bunkai, for example. I don't watch anyone else's bunkai other than my own, uh, unless I say it falls across my lap. But, but I don't go out of my way to look at it. Therefore, I know that anything I put forwards, if it ends up being the same, then that's just, you know serendipity it's not me inadvertently kind of looking at anyone else's stuff and absorbing it and thinking to myself in a year's time oh i've had a good idea you know it's that kind of thing so uh, yeah don't really watch that uh, much stuff from others apart from you know, my, my friends uh, stuff um but but yeah don't really take that much of a notice of it really so the next question is from steve griffin he said if you could clear up one karate mystery by putting a few questions to a past master who would you talk to and what would you ask them so for me, I would ask uh, Matsumura where Naihanshi came from, where he got it from, because uh, we don't know. You know, it's obviously a massively important kata. I absolutely love that kata. Uh, but we're not quite sure of its origins. Um, the, the historical information we have is, is pretty clear that it was Itosu who created the um, versions two and three. But what we often refer to now as Nahanchi Shodan, where that came from, we, we don't know. And martial artists have a really bad habit of filling historical gaps with their own theories. And then by the power of the internet, they become facts shortly after. But the bottom line with that one is we don't know. We don't know where that kata came from. So I'd like to ask Matsumura, you know, where did this come from? Was it something that inspired you to create it yourself? Um, did you learn it from somebody else? Who did you learn it from? What systems did they practice? Uh, that's the one I'd, I'd like to know. Of course, it's not vital. You know, I can still practice and enjoy the kata with that bit of mystery remaining but it would be nice to know. 
So the next question is from Nicole Oglin. He asks, uh, what's the difference between karate and other martial arts systems? If karate contains grappling, joint locking, throws, ground fighting, etc., in addition to the more obvious kicking and hitting, how does it differ from jujitsu or judo? You know, And that's a really good point, you see. And this is why I say I'm a martial artist first, a karateka second, and I have no idea what style I am. And the reason for that is my chosen vehicle for exploring the martial arts is karate. I, I like to approach the martial arts in a karate way. You know, I, I, I like the, the ethos of it and the way that it does things. But, but ultimately, you know, Nikolai's point's completely correct. You know, at a certain point, we all end up doing the same stuff. The jujitsu guy will train in a jujitsu way. Uh, and it will be structured in a jujitsu way. You know, and, and trying to define what karate is is not easy. You know, we've had like governing bodies for karate try to define what it is, and it's a struggle. It's one of those things where we kind of know it when we see it. You know, but but as to what it is, you know, there's always some exception to the rule that still goes under the label karate. I always like what uh, uh, Gavin Mulholland once once said to me. He said, you know, that karate as a term is a little bit like athletics. You know, that athletics covers a wide array of disciplines. But, you know, shot-putting is different from marathon running, but they're both athletics, right? So it's kind of difficult to get a definitive label on karate. I think the one thing we can say is that at some point, the label karate was applied to it, and it came uh, through the martial artists of Okinawa. You know, so, uh, of course, then it leaves there, and, you know, Japan changes it a bit, and over in the West we change it a little bit, and it, it keeps on moving and keeping evolving. But there's not that great a difference, because, you know, it, it's just, you know, choosing the vehicle that you like to explore the martial arts with, really. You know, so that's what karate is for me. It's the vehicle by which I choose to explore the martial arts, and if someone said, what's karate? Well, it, 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 at some point in its history, a martial art that uses that label will have came through Okinawa and the martial artists that applied the label karate to what they were doing. Next question is from Dan Briley. He asks, out of all the seminars you've done, uh, do any stand out as the most enjoyable, the most satisfying, or the most nervous, or even the funniest, or the strangest experience? And he's got in brackets, doesn't need to be all of them, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, see, I, re I love them. That's why this year has been so awful for me. I, I love the seminars. I absolutely really enjoy them. That There's nothing more fun than spending time with people who share your enthusiasm for the same things that you're passionate about. They're always an absolute joy, all of them. Uh, you know, and when this pandemic kicked off, you know, there was a moment where I thought, well, maybe seminars are done. Maybe they're just a, a thing of the past, right? Maybe this is, you know, seminars were like blockbuster video, right? It was a thing. But, you know, things move on and it's no longer a thing. So maybe large groups of people gathering to get hold of one another and do stuff, maybe that's a thing of the past. I mean, now that, the, you know, the, pandem uh, the pandemic, we can see, you know, it's not going to happen quickly, but we can see an end in sight as effective vaccines are in place and rolling out. You know, I, I know that they're going to come back, you know, but, but there was a point and it was a really depressing thought. That, that, you know, the thing that I love, really love doing, I may not be able to do. So they're all great, you know, so it, it's hard to pick out any as being more great, really. But there's certain ones that kind of stand out. You know, the ones in Las Vegas with Chuck Norris were obviously a very surreal experience. <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah, I watched you beat the living daylights out of, you know, Bruce Lee in the Coliseum when I was a young guy. And here you are standing watching me teach and talking to me about what I do. Very surreal. You know, uh, but that was quite enjoyable. Uh, Nerve-wracking. Uh, I think the, in the early days, um, 
like so I mentioned um, my friend Dan Redmond was one of the first guys in Northern Ireland that was one of the first seminars where I've ever got on a plane to teach so I was teaching locally quite a lot but that was you know when I first that was a little bit nerve-wracking the first day because this is not my people this is not people are used to what I'm doing it was great and I enjoyed it and it was a massive amount of fun um, but of course, you know, I, I don't really get nervous for any of them now because I've done that many of them. I just get excited and look forward to them. Funniest ones, again, I, I can't really think. There's lots where that, at the seminars that make me laugh. There's always funny experiences that make me laugh. So no, there's none that I can particularly kind of point out as being uh, the, 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 the funniest. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, the, the ones in Las Vegas with Chuck Norris stand out as being unique you know because that was a, 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 a strange experience i don't know if i've told this story before but i'll tell that now you know so the the one the one I, so the second time i did it so i'm in uh, las vegas we've got a, a plane leaving uh, later that day um they're doing the official photographs with chuck norris and the organizer said look if you've got a plane to catch you know sneak in first you know and, and then you, you can get on your plane so and at that time there was a, a friend of a, um, a, a of mine one of his students a big action movie guy and was really excited that you know i was going to over there so he came with me you know what i mean so um uh, just to train at the event and to, to meet chuck norris himself so we're sitting there me and, and my friend and we're just chatting to everybody lovely people at that event as well they were all just a joy to spend time with just so nice Re really really nice people so we're just chatting away and then chuck norris himself walks in and, and my friend is suddenly starstruck right and he's he's got a book that he wants uh, chuck norris to sign and he goes he's oh, he here he's here and i go yeah go go and ask him to sign your book and he's gone oh i can't i can't <laughs> so i go do you want me to do it for you and he goes yeah yeah, yeah if you would so i i, I let you know Chuck Norris get himself comfortable and I walk over and say excuse me Mr Norris you know I'm sorry to interrupt but would you be so kind as to uh, sign this book for a friend of mine and he goes yeah, yeah no problem so he pass it over and he's signing my book and then he looks up at me and he says uh, so what time does your plane leave Ian and there's that moment of surrealness where I think oh, I'm going to admit Chuck Norris knows my name right <laughs> you know so that was weird in itself so uh, what time does your plane leave and I went oh you know it's it, we, as soon as we finish here really we're back to the hotel room grabbing the stuff and we're off and he went right okay and he stands up and goes come on everybody let's get moving Mr Abernethy has got a plane to catch and there was just that really surreal moment that Chuck Norris is ordering people around for my benefit uh, that strikes me as, as, as really weird as well you know so so yeah, they stand out. And there's also the one, you know, uh, uh, Mark McYoung's barbecue as well uh, in, in Denver, Colorado. That has to be another memorable experience because that was really fun. Rory Miller was there, of course. Mark McYoung was there. Chris Wilder was there. Um, you know, the eating, drinking, and fighting in the dirt at the bottom of Mark's garden. It was it was a blast. So that, that's another one I remember has been a, a very enjoyable experience as well. So so yeah, you've got me going down memory lane now, Dan, but I hope that's that's uh, that's something. Happy thought number six. Whilst this Christmas is likely to be a major disappointment, Christmas 2021 will be amazing. So the next question is from Dan Bryan uh, and asks about plans for the WCA in 2021. Uh, so I'm sure most of you know, but just in case there's some of you who don't, uh, the British Combat Association uh, and its uh, sister organisation, the British Combat Karate Association, have uh, been running within the, the UK for you know decades. And then a, a while ago, as, as I was travelling, there was quite a lot of people who were wanting to connect in with that kind of pragmatic approach. And we're saying, well, can we join your group? Well, it was only really designed for British nationals, you see. So with conversations with uh, Peter Constein, we set up the World Combat Association, 
which is effectively the World Wing. So that's where all our members from outside the United Kingdom uh, join. So we've got members all over the place now. You know, it's, 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 it's doing really well all over Europe and Canada and the US and Australia. And, you know, we've got lots of people who have joined. And it's, again, that's a really nice community around that. So we're very active with that. I've been talking with Peter even this week about things that we're looking to move forwards. We're trying to get a WCA-based app uh, ready for everybody, um, just for ease of administration purposes. Uh, we're also looking, uh, when the pandemic's passed, at organising an event, um, like a, a two- or three-day event for people, WCA members, um, exclusive to WCA members, uh, to travel in so we can all train together and the various branches who may not know one another um, uh, will get the chance to train together. So, yeah, We've got lots of plans for the WCA in 2021, but at the moment, like most things, we've got to wait until the pandemic kind of clears and then we can kind of put all those plans uh, into action. Uh, next question is from my friend Les Bupke, uh, and he says, what do you think about your material from 10 years ago? Is there anything you would change? Uh, from my point of view, we have this fantastic tool to monitor progress. Would you agree? Uh, um, yeah, you know, so when I look back at, you know, so we've talked about first books 20 years ago. The Bunkai Jitsu book was 18 years ago. You know, a lot of time has passed since I put this stuff out. You know, first videos, again, they were done in the early 2000s as well. VHS cassettes, for those who remember those. Uh, and when I look back at them, I'm quite content with the content. You know, I was I was reading a, an interview this week that I did with uh, that Jeff Thompson did with me rather uh, for the launch of the book. So it was uh, yeah over 20 years ago, October 2020. No, October 2000. Sorry, uh, 20 years ago, and I was reading my answers, and they're pretty much the same answers I would give now. You know, so uh, in terms of that way, there's a consistency. But I think the main thing about the, that I notice about that material is I've definitely improved a great deal as a writer and a communicator. I think the fact that I get to do, uh, <laughs> under normal circumstances, get to do uh, seminars every single weekend, pretty much, in addition to my normal teaching, means I get, I get lots of experience of trying things out. And I'm, I'm my own harshest critic. The first thing I ever do, as soon as I get a chance to sit down after a seminar, typically, you know, if I land at the airport, you know, I'm back in my car for the drive, I'm immediately thinking, okay, what went well? What didn't go so well? What did you communicate effectively? What did they get confused by? How can you improve this? So, you know, I want to be the best seminar giver I can possibly be. So I'm always trying to analyze what I did. And there are some moments of revelation when you're seminar teaching where I've taught things that people have found complex and I find the right combination of words on the right demonstration and they pick it up way easier. So, so, so as a result of that, when I look back at some of my earlier stuff, I think I've, I've communicated that in a needlessly complicated way. You know, there, there, there are much better ways to do that now. And what I would hope is as well, you know, so in, in another 10 years, I want to be looking back at what I'm doing now and thinking, yep, yeah, okay, you know, there's some bits you were still doing the same as you did, but you've got better at getting that point across. So it's, for me, it's mainly on the teaching things. And I agree, you know, with, with Les, it's great looking back at that stuff. So for example, when I look back at my first video, I cringe at how, awkward I look in front of a camera you know whereas now having done it a lot I'm a lot more comfortable being in front of a camera at that point I was very comfortable standing up in front of groups of people but this is obviously different uh, and when I was lucky as well was I managed to get training at one point uh, I was in, in partnership with a uh, production company for producing the, the DVDs and uh, they uh, had access one of their members of staff used to train presenters for the BBC 
so they offered it to all the martial artists they were working with. Do you want this training? Now, some took them up on it, some didn't, but I, I was, yeah, I'm definitely doing this. Uh, and uh, uh, Louise was just such a help. You know, she was such a help because she's so professional. And little simple things that, that uh, for me personally, you know, you do this, Ian, and stop it, or you do this very well, do more of it. Uh, but there was also just the, the way that it's supposed to work. Because I think with, with good television presenters, that they do it so naturally that it looks easy. And then, of course, until you try it, and it's not easy at all. It, it, it's, it's difficult. You know, I had a newfound respect for TV presenters after I'd done a little bit of work with her. So, yeah, my presentation skills have definitely improved as well. And I agree. When I look back at look at that video from 18-odd years ago, I think, man, you've improved a lot. <laughs> so, I've got John uh, uh, Reed. He says, uh, who was your biggest inspiration uh, in your martial arts training? It's so many on that. You know, I'd have to point out my instructors. So you've got Doug James, 8th Dan, Peter Considine, 9th Dan, Jeff Thompson, 8th Dan. You've got uh, Mike Liptrop, my judo coach, who's been a big inspiration. Uh, Brian Seabright, who we're trained with, has been a, uh, a big inspiration to me as well. Uh, my students, massive inspiration. My training partners, you know, you all know them. You know, Murray, Fred, Tim, they've been a big inspiration to me. Um, so, yeah, too, too many to list, really. You know, but, um, yeah, everyone I've came into contact with, even those that I've came into contact with who were... Uh, Awful people or terrible martial artists are still inspiring in a way. Right? I, I don't want to be like that. I never want to treat people like that. I, I, I never want to do that. So, yeah, anyone and everyone, really. Okay, and that brings us to the end of the other questions. So that brings us to the end of the 2020 end of year podcast. So thanks very much for listening to it. I hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it. Thanks once again to everyone who submitted uh, questions. And, and thanks to everyone who's, who's shown me support during this, this year as well. Uh, I particularly got to thank my app users, I think, uh, because that sense of community that they've provided has just been awesome the, the interaction with people online the live training sessions we've done it, it's been really special so i'm grateful to, to everyone but uh, particularly for them and then for you I'm, I'm as i said at the start of this i'm pretty sure that you like everyone else has had a fairly awful year right and when that clock ticks midnight and 2020 is behind us it's not like everything's going to get better immediately uh, but there's you know, better times on the horizon. It's, it's clear that we've got a number of effective vaccines uh, rolling out here. I think there's over half a million people had it already. Uh, I'm sure it'll be the same in other parts of the world uh, pretty soon as well. So we'll have a slow start to the year, but come the spring, come the summer, uh, we'll see better days ahead. And I'm pretty confident, very confident, that by this time next year, all of this awful, awful year... And, and all that it's brought us, you know, all of that will be gone and, and we'll be back doing what we do. So I can't wait to see you all in person again. I can't wait to see you all at the seminars and those glorious days, they do lie ahead, right? So you take good care of yourself. Enjoy the rest of the festive season as best as you can. And I'll be back uh, back with you soon, okay? Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>